How are you all? Who slept well? Who slept really badly? Seagulls. You're blessed by seagulls. I'm Malcolm Duncan. Welcome to the Activist Zone. Big cheer. That wasn't that was kind of a half muted cheer, but that's okay. I'm sure as the week progresses, that will build. And let me introduce you to my friend Carl. Morning. Uh, Thank you. Carl, Carl, folks here won't know either you or me particularly well, so in 30 seconds, who are you, what do you do? Okay, um, I'm from Essex. Thank you. (laughs) Don't normally get a boo. I've got three wives, six kids, I've been in ministry for 40 years, and I'm 38. (laughs) Well, I'm I'm not from Essex, you better get used to this accent. Oh, is that an Irish person, or just because I'm not from Essex? I see. It was kind of just a reaction. Like the Conservatives won't win the election, Labour will lose it, that sort of thing. Ooh. Originally from Northern Ireland, I live on the Hampshire-Berkshire border, married to Debbie, have four children, lead a couple of churches there and lead a charity called Church and Community. Used to be the leader of FaithWorks, so very involved in trying to help local churches get involved in their local communities. If you wanted to be in the activist zone, you're in the right place. If you wanted to be somewhere else, you're in the wrong place. So now is the opportune moment to make a very swift and a surreptitious exit, if you would like to. Exactly. <laughs> but it's exactly. going to be great fun. You're going to love it. Yeah, exactly. Okay, Carl's going to start us off, and then we'll get into some of the stuff that we're talking about. Okay, because we are activists, that means that by nature you're probably a bit fidgety. So we thought we'd start by playing charades. <laughs> so we thought we'd start by playing charades. Okay, so basically, just for a couple of minutes, what you need to do is to have one person decide to be an actor or an actress and three people looking at the actor and the actor needs to think of a word that describes the character of God and act it out in the form of charades within two minutes. So you've got to get this working. You've got to get into a team of four, one person acting, three people watching, Someone decide the name of something that describes God and then act it out and then we'll be back. Announcements? Yes, we have some notices. Okay, um, these are the notices. Uh, We haven't actually read them ourselves yet because we've only given them a few minutes ago. But these are notices, space to be 10 to 11.15, 15 to 3.15, just looking. So if you're exploring the Christian faith, if you've got questions to ask, uh, you might be going for a period of doubt. The guy running that called Vince uh, runs a, a conference I run. It's absolutely fantastic. So uh, get along to that. Um, refreshment points today. There we go. 11.15. Self-explanatory. And the program theme book and learning guide are available from the stewards. Uh, just a little demonstration here from Malcolm. Learning guide. Book. Thank you very much. And that's about it. Over to you, I think. Thank you. You will need these, folks, if you're going to uh, follow material. Does anybody want to get one off the stewards now before we start? They do have some. Or if you're all all happy? Yeah, you've got to buy them, unfortunately. Um, You you will probably need one to look over somebody else's shoulder. Um, If you you don't mind making sure... This is one of the ones that they're using here. Do you want to... There you are. There's, there's a pragmatist in the activist zone. <laughs> if they subscribe, to, if you subscribe to Premier to the to Christianity magazine, you'll get the book. But it, 
And then you can give it to somebody else. Yeah, very good. No, so it will be helpful to have it. You just need to put that back at the end. Um, they're available in, on the various shopping outlets and from the stewards if you want to get them. Cool, let's start, shall we? Um, my, my daughter actually has two different colored eyes. One of them is blue and one of them is green. And I was going to put a photograph of her on the screen, but rather than that, I found this one is much more distinct. And I guess the whole course of this week, that's what we're looking at. What does it mean to look at the world differently? Now, um, on Saturday night, I'm actually uh, preaching in the big top, and I'm going to expand on this a bit more. But you all know that verse in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, I am sure, uh, which says, if any person is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Very famous verse used often when people begin their journey with God and they uh, talk to him and they want to know and understand more about him. It can also be translated a very different way without abolishing or destroying its meaning in any way. Paul had a real habit of writing using words in Greek which had double meanings. The other way of translating 2 Corinthians 5.17 is this. When you are in Christ, you see creation differently. Everything is seen anew which is equally true of the translation and a very powerful thing. What is it about me, born in the back streets of Belfast, born and brought up um, in a working class environment in Northern Ireland, what is it about me that um, as a 15, 16-year-old, unsaved, not in relationship with Jesus, could look around and see nothing but despair and blackness and bigotry and hatred and hopelessness and, and feel myself and members of my family getting pulled into that, yet when I came to faith, I could look at exactly the same situation and see hope. That's something of the work of the Spirit in me. And it's something of the work of the Spirit in you. When you come to living faith in Jesus, you are given new eyes. You're able to look at the world differently. Our challenge is, do we? Because before becoming a Christian, you didn't have the option, you see. You only had one set of eyes, if you like. When you've come to faith in Christ, you're given a new lens but we can choose to look through the new lens or the old lens of our eyes. And all, this week, all of it is about exploring what it means to look at the world with different eyes, to look at situations and see them the way Jesus would see them and understand them the way Jesus would understand them. Here's the way each day is going to work out. Um, this is every day. We're going to split into three sections. Section one, why? About 20 minutes, 15, 20 minutes. Why are we exploring the issue? What is it that we're talking about? Um, what are the key elements of it? Secondly, what does that mean? Oh, sorry. Secondly, what does that mean? How do we translate the theory of um, God today or Jesus tomorrow or the church the day after that or the world in which we live the day after that? How do we translate that into something that makes sense to us and can be understood and applied and lived out? And thirdly, some practical ideas around what that might mean for you. Or for me. Does that make sense? So each day, Carl and I are going to uh, take different responsibilities. We're going to swap it and change it so that you don't end up bored and uh, we end up engaged and listening and, and, and moving forward together. Today, then, is, the, is day two, day one for us, session one, but day two. If you have the study guide or the learning guide, it's pages 10 to 29 that you need to turn to. And we're exploring this idea of the God that we worship. Now, that's why Carl asked you at the beginning of the session to do charades. It wasn't just to break ice. It wasn't just to get you a bit relaxed. 
it was connected to the idea. What kind of God do we worship? Who is he? What's he like? Here's the things that we want to explore together today. Our aim in our session this morning is to help you and I understand and the character of God a bit more. What is he like? Secondly, we want to do that by understanding that God controls the way we see life. The way we look at him shapes the way we look at life. Does that make sense? So if we think of God as a pacifist, then we will be pacifistic. If we think of God as an angry schoolmaster ready to beat people with a, white, a big stick and a scowl upon his face, like Michelangelo's picture of God on the Sistine Chapel, then that's how we will represent God. Let me be a bit controversial. One of the reasons that evangelicals, and I'm an evangelical, are called angry is because we often believe in a very angry God. We live out the model of the God that we believe in. So we need to understand the kind of God that we believe in. And thirdly, we want to uh, just explore what that means for us. Because ultimately, all of today is about this. God will not be boxed in by you. He will not be boxed in by me. He's not going to be contained in any way. And we want to explore that together. So that's how we want to do that. It might surprise you, those of you that are Pentecostal. I'm a Pentecostal. But God, the Holy Spirit isn't a Pentecostal. God isn't a Protestant. Jesus wasn't an evangelical. He won't be boxed in. Much bigger than all of those. So, here we go. Um, I want to start with a very bold assertion. An assertion with which the Bible begins. The Bible doesn't start uh, proclaiming, let me prove to you that God exists. It doesn't start with a, an exegesis of the five reasons from Aquinas as to the reasons for the existence of God, although they're very interesting. The Bible starts with a really bold assertion. A bold assertion that challenged the first readers of it and challenges us. In the beginning, God. And all of our understanding of faith, all of our understanding of who God is and what that means for us, page 11 on your notes is where we are, if you're interested, um, begins with a, a bold faith assertion. God is. Not let me prove to you that he is. You will find nowhere in the Old or the New Testament some kind of attempt to prove the existence of God. No matter how hard you look, it just asserts his existence, which is a bold claim for theists. It's a bold claim for anyone, but it's a bold claim for those that are trying to make sense of life. And it's a bold claim for us. In the beginning, God. Now, there are lots of ways of interpreting the creation story, which we don't need to debate and discuss and get into today. But that assertion that God is at the source and at the center and at the beginning of all things is the point at which we're beginning our journey. Now, uh, that has challenges for us, because if it is true that God is, then that is the most bold assertion. That is the most life-changing uh, statement. That is the most dynamic, transforming reality that you can imagine. And it behoves us, if we believe in him, to work out who he is and then live our lives accordingly. Gandhi, you've all heard of Gandhi. Gandhi's most influential uh, reading by his own confession was the Sermon on the Mount and Gandhi said that the reason he was not a Christian was because that Christians did not take Jesus seriously he said if you believed as Christians what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount the world would be a completely different place we've allowed belief in our heads to be something that is in our head but doesn't affect our heart and therefore we end up with an ethics which is about stuff that we do rather than someone that we know. Does that make sense? 
So if we believe that God is, it really matters what kind of God we believe him to be. If we believe him to be a God that punishes sin, then that has an impact on the way we handle sin. If we believe him, according to Exodus chapter uh, 33 or Exodus chapter 3, when God explained who he was to Moses, if we believe him to be someone who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in mercy, then that will shape the way we behave. Yes? But often we don't do that grappling or we let somebody else do it. And we can find ourselves in a situation where we have inherited views of God that have come down from generation to generation, even within our own traditions, which shape the way we think about him. And that shapes the way we live. It is true to say what we believe, what we think, shapes what we are. It's always that way around. Always that way around. Let me give you a little analogy of that. Um, About 15, 16 years ago, I was pastoring a church in Bournemouth. Um, and I had a, a study in my room, in my, in my house, which uh, I used to study and pray and uh, reflect and prepare for messages and teaching and discipleship and lots of other things. I went through a period where I wanted to be sound a little more organized, so I changed its name to my office. And within six months, that's what it had become. It was no longer the place where I met with God. It was the place where I did routers and telephone calls and letters and paid bills. It's the place where I had staff meetings. It's the place where I had to discipline or line manage, all of that stuff. And it was my wife noticed. She said to me, something's changed about the way you use that room. And it was because I called it something different. What you believe shapes what you do. So what we believe about God shapes what we are. Ethics, which is what we're exploring this week. Good morning at the back in the cheap seats. How are you? Were you late? You tried to slip in and not get noticed? Drat. That didn't work, did it? Ethics is basically living in the light of what we know. Living according to a worldview. It's living according to the principles that will guard us and guide us. It's being the same on the outside as we are on the inside. And this week we have to grapple with that. If we believe in God, then how do we reflect it in our living? I have a problem with some of the ways we do theology. I love theology. I'm a theologian. I teach it and live it and everything else. But I have a problem with the way we do it. Somewhere in the last 400 years, we've allowed truth to become a series of statements. You shall not, you shall. And there is no doubt that truth is a series of statements. But because we stand in a Jewish tradition, a Hebraic spiritual tradition, and because we are followers of Jesus... We don't believe that truth is a statement. We believe that truth is a person and his name is Jesus. Now, if truth is a person, you can never fully know him. You're always on a journey. You're always invited into more understanding of him. Does that make sense? I know my wife. I can tell you things about her. She's five foot four. She's black hair. She's lost a lot of weight. She's the most gorgeous woman in the world. I love spending time with her. She makes me laugh. They're all statements, but they don't describe her in any way as much as I would like to try and describe her because knowing her is not about knowing facts about her. It's about being in relationship with her. And ethics is not about doing only. It's about doing that springs out of knowing. It's about making choices that spring out of a relationship with God. And for a relationship to work, we need to understand who he is. Does that make sense? Um, There's a great quote halfway down page 11 of your books. 
and it says this. Um, hundreds of art lovers, I don't know if you've got it, but I'll read it in case you don't have the book. Hundreds of art lovers crammed a gallery, anxious for a first glimpse of the romantic landscape painter's last words. Works. A rather well-to-do lady turned to her companion and in a voice for all to hear declared, I've never seen colours like that at sunset. Beside her, and unknown to, the self-styled critic stood the artist. With customary eloquence and tantalising grace, he whispered, But don't you wish you could? Christian ethics is about living God's colours into the world. It's about living the myriad rainbow of grace and love and hope and holiness into a world which is in monochrome. It's about letting the light of resurrection and hope shine into the darkness of our communities through us. There's a great verse, a translation of the, a bit of the Sermon on the Mount uh, from the message, Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, uh, where Jesus is teaching his disciples. He doesn't, the Sermon on the Mount is a message to the disciples, not to the general public. It's important to remember that. And uh, he says, you're here to be light, bringing out the God colors in the world. God is not a secret to be kept. We're going public with this, as public as a city on a hill. And I guess the challenge for you and for me is to tr translate that idea of living God's colors, living out of understanding who God is, into our lives. It's a very simple equation, actually, um, and it goes, like, it goes like this. Our knowledge of God, plus our intimacy with God, plus our obedience to God equals ethical living. So if you like, KO plus IO plus OO equal, OG equals ethical living. Knowledge of God, intimacy with God, and obedience with God or to God translates into ethical living. That's a problem for many of us because we've lost the balance between the idea of demonstrating our faith, good works, and believing. And we need to recapture it. James put it this way, you tell me you have faith without works. I want to see your faith by your works. Show me, he says, what you believe. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works that he has ordained for you to do. In 1 John chapter 4, we are told that if we say that we love God and we hate our brother, then we're liars. In other words, John, the whole of the New Testament actually, but John, James, Jesus, all of them say this, you can tell me what you believe, but I, would, can, I can see it more in how you live. And that's a challenge, isn't it? It's a challenge for you, it's a challenge for me. There's a great uh, American uh, philosopher called Michael Novak who's doing a load of work at the minute. He's not a Christian, but he talks about three different ways of believing. Public belief. Public belief is what you want everybody else to think you believe. It's what Herod had when he said, when you find the baby Jesus to the wise men, could you please tell me where he is so that I can worship him too? Of course, he was going to kill him. That's not what he believed. Private belief, Novak says, is what you think you believe, but you don't believe it. So you say, I believe in tithing. I just don't do it. I believe in hospitality. I'm just not that hospitable. I believe in commitment to the poor by giving 10 pounds a month to tear fund. Novak says, the way to understand what you really believe, 
core belief is to look at how you live. So you can tell me about your ethics and you can tell me something that you're not living. The way to see what your ethics really are is to look at how you're living. So those of us that are activists in this room, how are we living? How are we making our daily choices? Here's one of the ways in which we can be helped to do that very quickly. There are four, um, four revelations of God, if you like, four understandings of him that we need to, to work out in our heads. God is unique. Let's in the midst of being inclusive and in the midst of being welcoming and in the midst of being open and in the midst of saying, everybody start your journey. Let's remember that the God of the Old and the New Testament is uniquely revealed to us in Jesus and that there is still a need to enter into a personal relationship with him. We can't water that down. So the God we discover in the Old Testament and in the New Testament is a unique revelation of God. He is Yahweh, the only true God. Secondly, he is present. He's not living somewhere else. In every decision you make, in every ethical dilemma you face, God is present and demands that you or I make some response to that situation based on our belief in him. And he demands of us, he doesn't ask, he demands of us complete allegiance. He will not tolerate us diluting our commitment to him. The, the, the predominant theme through the Old and the New Testament is a God who will not tolerate dilution. You are mine or you are not, he says. You belong to me and therefore you obey me. And ethics is about understanding the uniqueness of God, the presence of God, and his demand for us to live like him and our capacity to be honest when we don't, but to be committed to the ideal. And of course, most importantly, God is love. God is pure love and pure holiness. That's a challenge for us. Now, I'm going to play a word association game with you. Then I'm going to hand you over to Carl. Here's the word association game. Um, I'm going to read you out 10 words, okay? And I want you just to... Put yourself back if you can, most of you can do this, 25 years. So we're looking at 1985, okay? If I use these words with you, tell me what, immediately what you would think. Web. PowerPoint. Laptop. I was going to say dancer, but never mind. <laughs> Mobile. Thing over a pram is what I would have thought. Twitter. Yes, exactly. Wicked. Witch. Fit. Now, I know I'm putting you off at this point, but. Fit. Buff. Shine. Exactly. See how these words have changed. Um, book. Do you know what it means now? Really good looking. Because the words for book are really cool. The, words, the letters for book and the letter for cool are the same on a mobile phone. So if a young guy or a young girl likes somebody else, they'll say they're really book. How cool are you lot going to be now? <laughs> Holy. Well, as Christians, imagine you were Christians 25 years ago rather than full of holes. I want to write a book, by the way, called Holy, Holy, Holy. W-H-O-L-L-Y, H-O-L-E-Y, H-O-L-Y, but maybe one day. <laughs> the idea of holiness, this is really important and probably a bit controversial for this week, has not changed. 
It doesn't mean being relevant. It doesn't mean fitting in. It means living under the revelation of who God is and in obedience to his word. It means being distinctive and different, all of those things. But it also means making hard choices in the light of who Jesus is. Does that make sense? Sometimes we can allow holiness to become very diluted. Our ethics are rooted in God's holiness and his holiness living in us. And that challenges us as activists. Carl. Oh, yes, you're going to show a clip, aren't you? Uh, in a bit. Yes. Um, here was what I was going to ask you to do. Can you get to that clip for you? Very quickly, two minutes you have for this. Um, in the book of Exodus, when God appeared to Moses, he appeared as what? A burning bush. And a burning bush is, was common in, in, um, in the Near East at that time. There were ten a penny. Burning bushes happened all the time. They weren't unusual. What was unusual about this burning bush was that it didn't stop burning. But they were all over the desert. Deserts are full of burning bushes. This was an ordinary burning bush, but an extraordinary burning bush because it never stopped burning. It was never consumed. Hard question. If God was to appear to us today in the 21st century, what's the equivalent of a burning bush? I'll give you two minutes to talk about it. Question. Facebook. What kind of Facebook? Anyone else? Facebook. How would you appear on Facebook? Yeah. <laughs> Without a computer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry? Infinite list of friends on Facebook. Green traffic light. Something that never needs you charging. Well, that's good. Mm. Wind up clock. A what, sorry? A wind-up God. A wind-up God, okay. We said a wind-up clock. Sorry, I was I'll come, actually, I'll mind. run. Yeah, you run. I'll run in my new... My new I've got these funny shoes that make me bounce. Oh, well, very good. And um, we talked about a reoccurring email or reoccurring text messages. Sometimes you get just, you know, unsolicited mail or, or actually friends that send you, you sort of messages every day or, or something, and it, some of them can be quite special. You have to avoid scrolling down. It says, you know, you will not be blessed unless you send this on to ten friends. But, but we just had a chat about that because a lot of people on email or have mobiles. Yeah. Anyone else? A television channel that isn't being transmitted. A tele what do you mean a television channel that isn't being transmitted? It's not being transmitted from anywhere. Oh, it disappears. It just appeared like a Doctor Who television channel, that type of thing. I've got you. Anyone else? What about a burning light that never goes out? A light in the sky that's just there. Something that shimmers all the way. I don't know. Interesting question. Cool. Okay, so we're going to spend a bit of time thinking about how God makes himself known to us now. Um, my own life is basically involved in telling blokes about Jesus. That, that I run a ministry that, that specializes in trying to engage men in particular. We're hemorrhaging men from the UK church at an alarming rate of knots. And men are stubborn. They argue. They're experts on everything. Have you noticed that? Particularly in the pub, men are experts on everything. So I spend my life trying to wrestle with these questions with guys and trying to help the church to get into the mode of reaching out to guys. So I have to wrestle with these questions all the time. And one of the big questions that blokes always want to ask is, well, what makes sure God's so distinctive? Why, why your God? You know, why not Allah? Why not Siddhartha Gautama? You know, what's it particular about your God? My own background is I wasn't, uh, wasn't born into a Christian home. 
Uh, I became a Christian at 18. I'm going to tell you a little bit about that story in a bit because story is quite important, isn't it? Cause it informs who we are and how we engage with this stuff. Uh, I had a bit of a blinding light revelation of who God was. But before that happened, I was the most stubborn, argumentative, pain in the neck, disruptive influence in my little local brethren chapel that you could possibly imagine to be there. So I have to, you know, ask all these questions as well and take a step back sometimes when I'm engaging men and think, it's okay when I'm getting a bit hot under the collar. I was once like that. Now, in the ancient world, they had no shortage of gods and they had some very interesting names. So you had Aten, which was the Egyptian sun god, but he actually called himself, they called him the valiant shepherd and creator of all. Isn't that interesting? He had Amon Re, who was the Lord of truth, the father of gods, who made man and created the beasts, the sovereign one. You know, I mean, you could say that, couldn't you, about Yahweh? Couldn't you? I mean, you could say the same kind of thing. You've got Enil, the Babylonian god, who was the judge and the good shepherd. How fascinating. And then you've got our God who says this. I, I just, just watching that then brought back a, a profound memory to me. Uh, the first trip I ever made to India, uh, just to teach in some Bible colleges and to run some evangelistic meetings. And I took a... And I was about 27, 28 at the time, and I, I thought I was the expert, you know, so I took this 18-year-old kid with me called Jamie, and, and I remember just parachuting him into this meeting. Uh, it was like a, a hut, about the same length, but about, you know, as wide as one section, and it was rammed with people. It was a really hot day, and, and Jamie was sitting there on the, on the stage with me, and they don't give you, they don't have Coca-Cola out there, they have something called Thumbs Up which is like spicy Coca-Cola. And we were sitting there drinking this warm, thumbs-up, spicy Coca-Cola. And Jamie said, what do you want me to do in this meeting? And I said, you can preach. And he went, oh, no. I went, God, you can do it, you can do it. Let's cut a long story short. He got up to speak, and he did the worst sermon I've ever heard in my life. It was rubbish. You know, but I didn't want to say that to him. So he sort of spluttered to the end of this thing with this translator. The translator looked like he was going to die of embarrassment. And then he said, what do you want me to do now? And I said... Well, just pray for them or something, you know, just pray for people thinking, oh, God, oh, God, what do we do now? You know, just a meeting led people would trek for miles to be there. And Jamie stood up and he did this very simple prayer. He just said, Holy Spirit, would you come and just be with people and, you know, help them, something like that. Amen. And he just sort of stood there. And I'm thinking, oh, I'm spinning my head in my hands thinking, oh, no, you know. And at that moment, have you ever been on the London Underground? When you stand on a platform and you can feel like a rushing wind, because you know the train's coming, you can feel the air just being pushed through. It was a feeling like that, but it wasn't that, because there was no rushing wind, but it was that kind of feeling. And I turned to the translator and I said, can you feel that? And he said, I can. I looked at Jamie, who had just gone pale, and, and I said, he said, what do you want me to do? And I said, well, go and pray for people. And now, bear in mind, I pray a Christian and Brethren Church, and this is all pretty new to me, really. So he walked over to, to one person standing on the front row, and it was a woman, and the women were sitting on one side, and men were sitting on the other side. And this was completely wrong. It was a completely inappropriate thing to do. He put his hand on her head, and he said, Holy Spirit, would you come? And I'm thinking, oh, no. You know, don't, don't do that. But literally, nearly the whole side of one, one tent, they all fell on the floor and started wailing and crying. 
oh, I can't believe this. I thought, I'm going to have a go at that. So I went over to the blokes and said, Holy Spirit, would you come? And they all just sort of stood there looking at me. <laughs> think, oh, okay, I was the expert, you know. Anyway, about five minutes into this, people are crying and they're worshipping. And it's huge grounds for people are praying in the Spirit. It was an amazing experience. And there's one person there, and I'm just going to say this like it is. One person there who had one eye, had, had a socket, you know, just with like a mushy bit in their eye. And jo- we came across them, we were praying in pairs, and Jamie said, we had three other people there from the UK, pastors, with me. And we came to this person, Jamie said, how do I pray for this person? I said, well, just pray, pray for their eye, I guess. And he put his hand on this person's head and he said, Jesus, can you give this person their eye back? Because I think they really need it. And as I stood there and watched, I watched his eye grow up from the bottom of his socket to the top. And we, we, just, we were just in tears. Now that experience informed my understanding of who God was and blew my mind. I've not seen anything like that since. I can barely ever tell that story without feeling like I want to cry. You know, the power of a creative God absolutely unbelievable i am who i am straight out of exodus now a much cleverer bloke than me i'm a very simple evangelist you know i stand in pubs and tell blokes about jesus but a very clever person said this dr martin lloyd jones the very being of god is so transcendent that all our efforts to arrive at an understanding are doomed at the very outset to failure which basically in my romford parlance means if he says that we are stuffed so how do we actually get to know God? You know, how do we do this? Well, just some uh, examples here from my own journey. There are three profound experiences in my life where God really met with me. The first one was the day I became a Christian on the 22nd of April, 1990, in this little Brethren church. I won't go into the details of how that happened, but it was actually a mind-blowing experience for me. I found myself standing up in the church, bawling my eyes out. I, I just a revelation of who Jesus was, and I was kind of almost doubled over, sobbing. Now, to put it in context, my dad was a flying squad detective. Okay, he was like in the Sweeney years, in the 70s and 80s. I remember falling off my scooter when I was five and, and crying, and my dad grabbing me going, take the pain, son, boys don't cry, you know. So I'm, 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 I'm in this church, surrounded by people who are 900 years old, crying my eyes out, sobbing, I mean, literally sobbing really loudly, and sat next to my mate after his collapsed, next to my mate Bigsy, who had invited me to go to church with him on that occasion. No, and he was a very ardent, passionate Christian. As I sat down, he was going, what are you doing that for? And I think, I thought you'd be happy, you know. <laughs> anyway, after an interrogation by the elders, and they realized I had become a Christian, another story, uh, I stood on the doorstep of the church, this is in Horn Church, on a main road. And I started to, I just sobbed again. Now, about where, uh, you know, the middle of, of this hall is, I'm standing here, about there, there is a tree, or more like a shrubbery. I can't say shrubbery properly, because I ripped my top lip off in a bicycle crash once, so I can't feel it. But there was a shrubbery, shrubbery. Right, moving on. And, and I look, it was like a dying bush and and as I'm looking at this dying bush I got so, so emotional and I've got Bigsy standing next to me and a couple of girls I only went to church I fancied a couple of girls there ended up marrying one of them how cool was that that was really book anyway so I'm looking at this looking at this bush and they're going why are you crying I'm saying can't you see the leaves 
And they're going, what are you talking about? I'm going, look, the leaves, the leaves. They said, what do you mean the leaves? I said, they're beautiful. Look at the colour. And they said, what do you mean the colour? And I'm going, they're like green and everything. And what had happened was, and this is seriously, what had happened was the scale had come off my eyes. So for the first time, I'm seeing the world that God had made. That's straight out of Romans, isn't it? Now, people are without excuse. You know, God partly reveals himself through creation. Now, I didn't know that was in the Bible at the time. But I was driving home after about an hour when I stopped shaking. I'm looking at people and I'm crying. And this is when I felt first stirred to become an evangelist. I go, my goodness me, they're people that God made and everything. God loves people. He made them. That was just a profound revelation in my life. That was the first one. The second one was actually here at Spring Harvest. Now, confession, I haven't been to Spring Harvest for about 15 years. Is that on tape? Blast. Bang goes my back. So anyway, I was at Spring Harvest, and we were in the big top, and, and it was when there was a profound move of the Holy Spirit, and everyone was being prayed for, and there was carnage all over the big top. You know, people were, on the, people were crying and rolling around and all sorts of things. Now, my wife and I at the time, we were new to all this, and we thought, what the, what the heck is going on? You know. But I made an appeal for people to be prayed for. So Karen and I went to the front, and, and we sort of closed our eyes, and we tried to concentrate, because like, you think if you concentrate, you might get more of God. You know, somebody like this, very young, concentrating. And, and someone came over and prayed for us, and, and after a while, I could feel this hand come off my head. And I, I looked, I opened my eyes, and he'd gone. He'd given up. Because we were nothing, we were just still, still standing there. And as I looked around, everyone was on the floor, apart from me and Karen. I thought, oh no. I mean, you feel really second class, don't you? We felt really rubbish. Thought, we have not got it. You know, what's going on? So we stepped over the bodies. I went back to my budget room. Do you remember budget rooms years ago? I used to have a, there was a groove in the back of our toilet where it was so old when we first, this was years ago. Anyway, I went back to my budget room. The reason I say that was there was no atmosphere in the room. There was no nice music, no dim lights. It was very grey. It's very horrible. Karen was very upset. She's quite tearful about it. So she went out for a walk by herself. I sat on the edge of my bed and I cried out to God. I said, please, you know, oh, come please, you know. Are you, are you here or not? Are you real or not? You know, why? And all I can say is I had an experience akin to the one I had in India. But I just felt the glory of God come in the room. This is an experience. First one, revelation of creation, God making world. Second one, experience. Do you know what? By the time I'd finished praying, I realized that 90 minutes had gone past. I'd been on my knees for 90 minutes worshiping and praying to God in my own, in that room. That was the second experience in form understanding. The third one, at university, studying engineering, my backsliding years. In my backsliding 18 months, I've been in a party where they've been passing around cannabis joints. People have been smoking. People have been drinking far too much. And I've been caught up into that. I've been a Christian for about six months, straight off to university. And I went into the flat toilet. And I caught myself in the mirror. You ever done that? You kind of look up and you really look at yourself in the mirror. And you really look into your eyes. But I did that. And I, I had this moment of thinking, what are you becoming, you know? And at that moment, I had this awesome sense of the fear and the holiness 
and the wonder of God. And I got on my knees in that toilet, which is really scummy, but I couldn't but help do that. You know, in that video clip where he said, take off your sandals, you know, you, he takes it because he's on holy ground. I had that feeling, I guess. And it was the first time, this is, I've been a Christian six months, I really understood what repentance was. It was a radical encounter with the holiness of Jesus, really. And I ran out of that flat and I went back to my bedroom and I cried and I prayed and I fell asleep. And in the morning I woke up and I used to, first thing I used to do is reach for a cigarette. And I, as I reached over, I just felt the love of God and God saying to me deep inside, you don't need to live this way anymore. You don't need to live this way anymore. Three experiences, revelation of God as creator part of my story this number two spring harvest the awesome wonder of god that made me want to worship him number three in the flat the fear of god you know but also in the morning romans eight fifteen, by the holy spirit you know that you're sons of god you know that unconditional love you're adopted into the family you don't need to do this anymore so in those encounters love or fear and then love again but they were experiences some of them straight out of scripture, but they're experiences. Now, there is something called this, the Wesleyan quadrilateral, which sounds like something you need an ointment for, doesn't it? You know, you go to the doctors and say, how's your Wesleyan quadrilaterals today? And they're a bit swollen, I need some ointment. That's what it sounds like. Now, but the Wesleyan quadrilateral is basically this. that we, we understand God. The Wesley brothers use this to... Help people understand how we discover God. So number one, the Bible, which is, you know, I believe our final authority. You know, so when as a pastor for a decade, someone would come to me and say, my marriage is just going under, but I've met this other woman, and that's why the marriage is going under. I feel so much closer to God since I've met this other woman. You think, no, wrong. How do you know it's wrong? Bible, you know, rubbish pastor, aren't I? Bible. I mean, you just know. That's your final authority. The church, we explore this a bit later in the week. Being in community, resting together, a worshipful community, wrestling through things. Three, human reason. And fourthly, human experience. Which is why I became more of a Pentecostal Christian, partly through experience, partly through reading the Bible. So in my own journey, these things are hung together. Now, we're going to have a little experiment here for five minutes because we're activists. The stewards are going to hate this. Sorry, fellas. Okay, what we're going to do is make a sculpture with chairs of the Wesleyan quadrilateral. If one chair represents the Bible, one the church, one human reason, and one represents human experience, how would you create a sculpture from four chairs that represents the Wesleyan quadrilateral? I.e., are they all connected? Is it linear? Does one flow to the other? I mean, how does it work? Got that? You got five minutes to make your Wesleyan quadrilateral. Four chairs. Oh, say say five or six in a group. Say six in a group, because then you can row a bit really badly, <laughs> which would be brilliant. All the chairs are on the ground. Can you all look and see? Okay, why this way? Who's the spokesperson? 
Um, okay, because they're all dependent on each other, we have one different chair, and that's the Bible. Um, but together, they would all, if you pulled one of them out, they'd all fall down. So they're all dependent on each other. Which is the Bible? And it's like the linchpin, is it? So if you take that out, everything else collapses. You talk, this is actually part of the theological debate that led, led to the Reformation. Not building chairs, but this whole relationship of tradition, experience, church, and reason led to the Reformation. There's probably the only Methodist in here. <laughs> I ought to get this right. The Wesleyan quad, quadrilateral. Uh, I just figured that it ought to be an upright cross as near as one could get to it. We're not standing on the best side for that. If you look at it from the other side. Okay. So it depends what angle you look at it. But if you look at it from the other side, it's a cross. It looks more like a cross. And do, do you know which chair represents which? Or are they all of equal value? Equal value. Equal value. Thank you so much. Oh, down here. Because you're sitting very patiently. You're quiet activists. <laughs> but activists nonetheless. Yes, exactly. Okay. So uh, we've got our open book, the Bible. And everything's touching it, or should be, kind of, almost. And then on top of that, we've got the church, the steeple here. The reason is connected to the Bible, the reasoning in the book. And then on top of that, we've got the experience bridging everything. This one to be a little bit longer. So you'd like a slightly bigger chair to cover the whole thing. Well done, thank you. Anybody else want to explain? We'll do another couple. These are great. Oh, yours is exactly symmetrical. It's across, everything is equal, everything is facing the centre, which is God. Okay, so now I, I, let me pause there, because you've got everything facing the centre and everything equal. I did hear a little bit of a conversation over here, which is really interesting. Um, this one, why is yours the shape it is? Um, because they're all um, interdependent on each other. If you take one away, they'll all fall out, or all fall down. But also, we kind of felt that they, they're all connected, but they all reach outwards as well. So that was the, the, the legs of the chair reach outwards. So you've got one model. Thank you, everybody, for doing that. You can take your seats, not literally, although you may think that's the thing we're asking you to do. You've got one model where they're all equal and facing in, and you've got another model where they're all equal and facing out. And it's a real challenge uh, to kind of work out how that all fits together. But it, it nevertheless was, is a great exercise and one of the things that we need to do with the whole question of the Wesleyan quadrilateral or the Bible or our understanding of experience and authority and so forth is translate this whole situation, this whole discussion into the way we live. It isn't enough to talk about it. It's not enough to have conversations about it, although we need them. The kind of stuff we're talking about today has to change and shape behave the way we relate to people around us, and the way we live in our world. Now, I think it's really interesting, I'm going to ask you to do something in a minute, that Card was talking about his own experiences of God and how they led for him to a, a deeper understanding of God's purposes and the way he wanted to live. I wonder what your experiences of God have been over the last two, three, four, five, fifteen, or 20 years. If I asked you to give me the key moments in your life at which something of the revelation of who God is and what he was and what he wanted for your life was uh, shown to you, I wonder what they would be. Because one of the things that we want to do, you see, is not, although you've come to the activist zone, it's important to push yourself around the other zones of learning. 
although you're an activist and you want to do, 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 you need to reflect. I need to reflect. I'm actually an active reflector. Perhaps between today and tomorrow, at some point for five minutes, you want to take a, a notepad and a bit of paper and reflect on the key things in your life that have shown you who God is. Maybe it's a moment of conversion, or maybe your conversion was a journey into faith rather than a, a sudden moment. Maybe it was seeing creation differently. Maybe it was a, a difficult situation. Maybe it was losing a loved one. One of the strongest moments in my life in understanding who God is was the abrupt and sudden death of my father. I don't know where it is for you, but maybe it's worth reflecting. Further, so question one, what are the key moments in your life where God has demonstrated himself to you secondly in what ways do you think your life is caricaturing God if people were looking at you and you were the letter being read by all men you were the epistle in what ways are you a caricature of God because we all are in one way or another none of us are perfect is your view are your words, is your approach to a certain group of people a caricature of what God is like? Or is it actually what God is like? Where, where are the, I guess I'm asking you a pastoral question. Where are the areas in your life that you need to bring your behavior into line again with the character of God? Does that make sense? That's a challenging question for us. Challenging question. Carl talked about repentance, and I want to come back to that, then ask you to do something, then we're done. The, the Greek word for repentance, and you'll all know this, but it's worth being reminded, is metanoia. Um, and, and often we can have a, a warped view of repentance. Uh, you tell me when repentance is. Many people think, you see, that that, this moment, walking in one direction, stopping and turning, that's the moment of repentance. That's not repentance. Any of you know what repentance would look like if I was doing it as a walk? What would it be? Tell me. You tell me what to do. Shout. Exactly. It's changing and walking back in the right direction. It's not just stopping. It's not going off in that direction or that direction. In fact, the best description of repentance as a spiritual discipline is imagine God is at the center of your compass. God is your polar north. Repentance is keeping your life directed to polar north. It's every day, every moment saying, I will keep myself on course. When Gordon Brown became leader of the Labour Party um, in 2007, uh, at his first address to the whole party he talked about having a moral compass then the press picked it up and said he doesn't have a moral compass there was a whole debate about that and lots of things went on our moral compass is not a set of regulations it's not a set of rules it's not even a set of experiences our moral compass is God himself our moral compass is God's character so when we are out of sync with God's character he doesn't change, we do. What does that mean? Because that sounds awfully grandiose, it sounds awfully posh, but what does it mean? Imagine you're the pastor of a church, or you're in a church leadership team, or you're the fabric team, 
and you have a conversation. Somebody comes to you and says, uh, I'm going to split you into two sections, possibly three, to discuss these. I'm going to give you three different scenarios and give you five minutes to talk about them. Scenario one, um, you use your building for the community and a group of Muslims approach you and say, can we hire the hall for a prayer meeting on a Friday? Using the Wesleyan quadrilateral or using a conversation, whatever way you want, what would your answer be? Okay? So that's you guys. You can break into groups, but that section is asking that question. Okay? What would you do? Second question for, let's split you right down the middle. So the chap in the very fetching um, sports jacket, yes, all the way forward, grey-haired in the middle with the glasses, you're on this side, uh, red, you're, this is a block. Second question for you. Um, you are at work, and um, somebody comes to you and says to you, uh, look, I know a way of um, really improving our business performance. But you know it's not legal, but it's not that illegal. It's not a big, glaring white lie. It's not a big, glaring black lie. It's more of a white smudge. How would you handle it? Okay? Third question, you guys. An asylum seeker or a group of asylum seekers come to you in your community and say, um, will the church champion our cause? You know that your church is made up of people who think that asylum is an issue. What would you do? Asylum, work, so community, work, church. Okay? Do you understand what you're doing? What ethical choices would you make? We'll give you four minutes, three minutes to talk about that. Before we finish, um, so you were doing the church scenario. What would you do? In, in just a couple of sentences, what would you do? Did you make a decision? Not really, no. Um, we, we probably said no, we wouldn't, because the, the church, we, we would have difficulty with um, people praying um, it was from the Muslim faith in a Christian building. So you would say no because it's a Christian build, or building used by Christians. Would somebody say yes? Why would you say yes? Well, we said we would say yes because it is a building. God is present in the building. They are calling on God, albeit in a different way. Our God is able in mysterious ways to meet with them or reveal himself to them. We don't know. And we also said we might pray the night before <laughs> over the chairs or something that God <laughs> may just reveal himself to them because they are seeking God in one way or the other. But we also acknowledge that it would be difficult because some members of the church are likely to disagree. So it would be a challenge. Thank you. Okay, second scenario, which was this scenario, the work scenario. Um, would any of you say, that's fine, let's fudge it? None of you would. So none of you have ever taken a staple or a stapler or none, none of that. None of you have ever done that. That's really, I, I didn't think any of you would have fudged it. But what would you say? Well, we, we discussed what would happen if you lost your job yeah. because you didn't go, you know, I mean, yeah. So there's an issue there about, you know, in the economic climate where, I mean, we both felt that, you know, at the end of the day, it's a witness, so you have to be seen to be doing the right... We know you have to feel that you have to do the right thing, but 
there are also issues that colour it. So it's not so black and white. So it's not simple. Um, last scenario was your scenario, the asylum seekers. Who would help them? How would you help them? Let me come around to you. So you'd help them and take on the church? Yeah, um, we felt that we, we should um, be like Jesus and, and help them and also maybe try and teach our congregation and help them to see the asylum seekers through Jesus' eyes. Did any of you say, no, we wouldn't help them? Or about the asylum seekers because we feel they've got lots of different agendas, the people who are over here. So you'd want to work out whether they were asylum seekers? Necessarily fight their corner. Okay, okay, thank you. And one last comment before we finish. I said I felt it was important that you looked at what God was doing in your community and seeing whether that fits in with what God's already doing. Just those three simple questions show you that there aren't easy answers to this, but the ethic is the ethic of Jesus, the ethic of God's heart and character. He's our moral compass, and there will still be disagreement amongst us, but unless we can talk about issues like this in church with each other, challenging one another's assumptions. Where else will we do it? Mother Teresa of Calcutta used to end her uh, days by saying to the sisters in the convent, go do something beautiful. So as you go into the day today, go do something beautiful for Christ. Uh, on this board at the back is our emails. That's there so that if you want to join us on Twitter or Facebook or whatever you can, if you'd like a copy of all of these PowerPoint slides, we'll make them available to you with all of the stuff that goes with them after spring harvest. If you drop us an email, we can do that, no problem. Don't forget the text number, and we'll see you back here tomorrow morning at uh, 10 o'clock. God bless you. Have a good day. Thank you.